I actually love that there's a bit of pressure on the industry to say, no, we know at our best um, that this is an unstoppable force and, it's, and people want to get out of the house and experience it. So let's be at our top game. Everybody, everybody should be at our top game and we're going to be just fine. This is the Box Office Podcast. I am Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America exclusively dedicated to covering theatrical exhibition. Joined once again by our co-host, Rebecca Pauly, deputy editor at Box Office Pro. We've got another great episode for you this week. We've got the executive chairman and co-founder of Alamo Drafthouse, Tim League, joining us today for an interview where he will be talking about the circuit and its new New York City location. And as always, full coverage of the theatrical box office. But before we get started, a quick word from this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Box Office Pro's Commemorative Centennial Edition. Celebrate 100 years of our magazine by advertising in our Commemorative Centennial Edition, reaching over 4,000 top executives and decision makers in theatrical distribution and exhibition this December. Our magazine is the official publication of the National Association of Theater Owners, reaching the most influential figures in the industry, both in the U.S. and around the world. Special rates are available to celebrate our 100th anniversary in publication. For more details, please email susan at boxoffice.com. And the deadline for those uh, congratulatory ads, if you would like to congratulate us for our birthday, is going to be this Friday, November 5th. So please be sure to email susan at boxoffice.com for more information on being involved in that commemorative issue. But enough pitching ourselves to our audience. Rebecca, let's talk about <laughs> what we've got ahead of us, which is uh, another busy week here in exhibition. Some interesting headlines from the month of October, including great performances from two of the biggest circuits in the country. Yeah, it really does feel like we're turning a quarter here as we move into autumn in the awards season. AMC and Cinemark, respectively the first and third largest chains domestically, have had, with the month of October, their highest grossing month since before the pandemic started. Meanwhile, looking internationally, multinational chain Kinepolis, which operates in Europe, Canada, and the United States as MJR Digital Cinemas, uh, their attendance continues to rise. In quarter three, 2021, their attendance numbers were 70.5% of what they were in Q3 2019. Of course, you know, as we've spoken, Daniel, on this uh, on this podcast repeatedly, it's not just about those uh, big blockbuster films. Uh, in order to really be successful and have continued success, the global exhibition market has to have a diversity of titles. And that, of course, is where event cinema comes in. We've had some exciting news from Fathom Events, the uh, number one distributor of event cinema titles here in the U.S., which set its pre-sales records in 12 hours uh, with a faith-based title this December. And we also uh, have some exciting news from a newer event cinema operator, uh, Iconic Events. Daniel, can you, uh, can you explain what's going on there? Something very interesting from a relative newcomer here in the event cinema landscape in the United States, iconic events bringing a Netflix title, Mitchell's versus the Machines, to cinemas 
under an event cinema engagement on November 20th and 21st of this year. I think this is a curious development considering that this is a film that was originally slated for theatrical release from Sony, its original studio, back in 2020. Because of the pandemic, Sony sold, has sold a number of titles to streamers, this being one of them, a family-driven title. Rebecca, what's the background of a title like this one that I think was probably on both our radars before this entire pandemic mess started? Well, I mean, it's a film that was co-produced by uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who are just like titans in the animation space. Of course, the original uh, Lego movie, you have uh, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. They've been involved in a number of really good and not to mention award-winning animated titles. So, you know, I personally was was quite disappointed when it was uh, sold off to Netflix. Got good reviews, as tends to happen with a lot of these Netflix titles, you know, people talked a lot about it for maybe three days, <laughs> and then it kind of uh, went away, uh, dissipated into the atmosphere a little bit. It's definitely an exciting development that a film that was going to be theatrical, then when exclusively streaming, is now coming back in that event cinema space. So I, you know, I was really excited to see the film, and then it moved to Netflix, and I kind of forgot about it. So I never actually ended up watching it. So I got to buy my ticket to get I, in on I this one. I haven't seen it either. Yeah, and we finally get to see it on the right. Big yeah, I'm excited to, to see it. I think it's a great development. And as you mentioned, Rebecca, part of that potential of what event cinema can bring to the industry right now. Uh, for example, we are recording this a day after Halloween. And yesterday, you couldn't miss one of these Squid Game costumes, really anywhere you were. Squid Game being a very popular foreign television series from Netflix, really getting the sort of global impact that I think a Korean language TV series would have never dreamed of without a global streaming platform and highlighting and amplifying the strength of that Netflix platform. You see that cultural resonance in many different countries that that series has had. With a move like this from iconic events, hopefully it can open the door for non-theatrical titles like, say, episodes of streaming series coming to cinemas and event cinema engagements. I think it's great potential. I think it can really help these series, whether it's from Netflix or Hulu or, or Amazon, get to a wider audience. And let's not forget what's in the name, eventize, further eventize these serials that you can watch at home with big theatrical events. Hopefully what we're seeing is foreshadowing of things to come with cinemas working closer with streamers to benefit from each other's strengths. I don't think Squid Game is something that would be anywhere near what it is today without a Netflix. I think it can get to a next level with the help of, say, event cinema screenings down the line. I mean, I think without Netflix, uh, for sure, I wouldn't have seen young children celebrating Halloween in Squid Game costumes, which is a little weird considering how, <laughs> how violent and gory the show is. Uh, something I didn't see to my, uh, to my great dismay is any little children dressed up as the giant sandworm from Dune. Uh, you know, oh, there's still a chance I, children that so do it next cute. year. Yeah. <laughs> Adorable. Uh, Dune, Dune, you know, continues to have a good run. It retained its top spot at the domestic box office, dropping uh, 62% in its second weekend to $15.53 million on a little bit over 4,100 screens. That brings its domestic total so far to $69.4 million. That decline of 62% is uh, roughly on par with what we expected, and it's actually a more modest decline than what we saw from previous Warner Brothers releases, The Suicide Squad 
Squad and Mortal Kombat, which had 70% sophomore declines. Those films, of course, also, like Dune, uh, debuted theatrically uh, and then day and date on HBO Max as well. Uh, Internationally, though, Dune continues to do quite well. Um, It is currently, as we record this, sitting at 292 million worldwide. So within a matter of days, hours, minutes, maybe it's already done it, it will cross the 300 million market. Uh, Its top international performers are China, France, Russia, Germany, and the UK. And those are strong performances from those top five overseas markets, Rebecca, all of them above an 18 million theatrical cum so far in release. Uh, Positive momentum for a title that I think has uniquely benefited from premium large format screenings despite its availability on HBO Max. This is actually the only movie I've seen twice in theaters since the start of the pandemic. And I actually went in and within a week paid extra money to see it in two different premium formats. The first time uh, I saw it on, on IMAX and I was completely blown away by that presentation. I think this is for me personally, the best movie I've ever seen on an IMAX screen. And the audio was so impressive in that theater that I went back days later to see this at a Dolby Atmos auditorium and was completely blown again just by the sound design of this title. I think a fantastic experience. It's available for me to watch at home with my HBO Max subscription. I haven't even turned it on. I'm not interested in seeing it at home yet. I think it's it's part of that appeal that we keep on talking about. How is a film optimized for cinemas? Unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be a factor for the number two title of the weekend, Halloween Kills, which in its third frame dropped to 8.7 million from 3,616 screens. It's about a 41% drop. The film now stands at $30.8 million from a total of 63 overseas markets. And globally, it's already reached 116 No Time to Die is really shaping up to be an international juggernaut, in large part, I imagine, because it's a film that you cannot see on any streaming platform anywhere. It is theatrically exclusive. Domestically, in its fourth weekend, it enjoyed a gross of 7.6 million on around 3,500 screens, bringing its domestic cum to 133.1 million and counting. Uh, That's a 37% drop. We're seeing this one have a really solid hold. Um, And actually, if you compare it to the first Daniel Craig Bond film, Casino Royale, it's kind of performing roughly equivalent uh, to that film. Not up to the level of, say, a Spectre or a Skyfall, but pretty well, uh, particularly internationally, where the film at long last debuted in China to 28.2 million, uh, the third biggest imported Hollywood title of the year in China. We are looking at a worldwide cum at this point of 606. Point two million um, in those top five overseas markets. It's actually having holds of like under thirty percent, which is incredibly oh, wow. good, incredibly strong, and, and they've, really they've had that title to, for a little bit longer. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 really a it's really a strong hold on this one. Uh, meanwhile, number four at the box office. I don't know if it's 
fair to say that this one overperformed or performed surprisingly well. We are talking about a My Hero Academia World Heroes mission. Now, if you're not familiar with this title, it is the third in a trilogy. It's an anime film based off of an anime manga property. It's released from Funimation, a division of Sony. It's the highest grossing new film of the week, out earning some films that Daniel, I'll ask you about in a minute. It opened to 6.4 million around uh, 1,500 screens. And uh, Daniel, I mean, Funimation, the studio that released Demon Slayer, which of course uh, did great internationally and domestically where, where Funimation released it. I think, you know, it relates back to the conversation we had earlier in this episode about event cinema, about uh, the need for diversity in types of films. I mean, this is not necessarily a, a property that, would be on the majority of people's radar, but clearly it's 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 hitting the people who it needs to hit, and it's bringing these people out to theaters who maybe haven't been back for, let's say, a more uh, quote unquote mainstream title. Certainly, not as not as many people came out uh, for the other new releases um, as as their respective studios would have liked to have seen. Rebecca, I'm not even sure we can call it a surprise that a Funimation anime title like My Hero Academia opened in fourth place. What is a surprise, however, is that it opened above a new release from Focus Features like Last Night in Soho from a well-known filmmaker like Edgar Wright, even though it is playing in almost half the screens. Last Night in Soho, the new release from Focus Features directed by Edgar Wright, opening in almost twice as many theaters than My Hero Academia, but finishing in sixth place with a 4.2 million haul. Another film wasn't quite able to catch on, another horror title from Searchlight Pictures. We have Scott Cooper's Antlers open to 4.2 million on 2,800 screens. Demographics-wise, its audience uh, was 59% male. Daniel, I think for this one, it, this was originally slated for release, I think, in April of 2020. I just feel like this is one we've been seeing the trailer for ages. It felt a bit stale at this point. And definitely, I mean, coming out on Halloween weekend, it had quite a bit of horror competition, not least from Halloween Kills. So... You know, in terms of new releases, yeah, we have uh, an anime title from from Funimation really knocking everybody else's down a peg or two. And I think it speaks to this transition that we're seeing with specialty outfits like Focus Features and Searchlight getting comfortable or trying to get lessons from this new paradigm in theatrical distribution, where a platform release is actually less of an assured thing than it was two, three years ago, right? We're seeing a slightly different approach to that strategy from Searchlight themselves and how they're rolling out the French Dispatch, which we spoke about uh, gaining the best per screen average of the pandemic last weekend when it opened, I think in slightly over 50 locations. It actually beat titles like Venom, Let There Be Carnage, and Black Widow in that per screen average when it had that initial very platform rollout last weekend. That title actually expanded this weekend, not wide, still limited, to 788 screens here in North America. It finished uh, right at the bottom of that uh, top 10 frame that we have with a 2.7 million haul. Uh, when you divide that with that 788 screens, you're still seeing a fairly competitive per screen average in the marketplace. So yes, it's not a big banner opening weekend or sophomore frame, 
but it's 105% improvement from its opening weekend last weekend with a title expected to hit an even wider screen count this weekend coming up on November 5th. So the French dispatch from Wes Anderson now hitting 4.6 million domestically after its first two weekends in release. We're expecting the film to also perform better next weekend with more locations. I think we'll be very interested to see how that performs, especially since around the corner, we've got a big behemoth Marvel title, but there's an asterisk to it, kind of like Shang-Chi. These are a bunch of superheroes I don't think anyone outside of Marvel fans has ever heard of. Rebecca, what are these Eternal guys? I don't know what the Eternal guys are. They're from space. They're immortal, maybe. At least they live a long time. One of them is played by Angelina Jolie. I mean, really, really, that's all. That's all you need to know here. I mean, Marvel in the past has, has had great success in kind of taking these characters who you're like, huh, what the heck? A talking raccoon and then proceeding to make sure. a, a ton of money off of them. Um, you know, we'll have to see how Eternals carries along here. The reviews so far have been mixed. I mean, we know it's easily, easily, easily going to get to that number one spot. Really, the questions are by how much. I'm curious as to how the PLF is going to shake out for Eternals. Mm, and I'm point. curious as to what effect that is going to have on the third weekend drop for Dune. But tune in next week and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll break that down for you. Uh, I want to use this as a good transition point for my interview with Alamo Draft House co-founder and executive chairman Tim League. As the circuit emerges from bankruptcy that it had to file because of the pandemic in 2020, naming a new CEO during the pandemic, Shelley Taylor, as the company regroups and comes out of the pandemic with the opening of their new New York City location, it looks like Alamo Drafthouse is really looking at this revival of its brand with its audiences finally coming to light. Yeah, it's an incredibly strong brand, Daniel, and, and one that um, really is, is, a, is a little bit of a balancing act between these mainstream programming, uh, more, let's say, indie, weirder type stuff, and then repertory programming. Some of that more mainstream titles and then other, you know, I always like going to Alamo and finding out what weird little quirky thing I'm going to be seeing. Another strong part of their brand, really, uh, design and the dine-in presence, the menus, you know, it's a whole package. It's, it's not just the programming. It's an interesting mix, as you mentioned, Rebecca, because Alamo sits in this weird intersection between independent repertory and mainstream programming. You mentioned the weird movies and the deep cuts that they bring out. They usually program those in off-peak times on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, right? And actually 7% of the circuit's gross is attributable to repertory films alone. That's a very, very high percentage among uh, big circuits here in the United States. So it's a weird sort of mix that they had, and it's a mix that they couldn't pull off with only seven screens in that Brooklyn location, which is why in this Manhattan location, they're adding 14 screens to New York City to give them that flexibility in programming. This is actually tied with a Springfield, Missouri location for the highest screen count in one cinema for Alamo Drafthouse. So now you have seven screens in Brooklyn that can do some of that programming mix and 14, I think two or three subway stops away in Manhattan that doubles that programming flexibility and presence that Alamo draws upon from that audience. What really struck me in this Manhattan location, Rebecca, is that 
its auditoriums really aren't this big hall style of design. Like you mentioned, dine-in is a huge part of its identity. So the biggest auditorium in this new New York City location only has 59 seats. Extremely interesting. Uh, they're introducing this uh, call button ordering system, so you minimize that interaction with servers, so it's less of an intrusive presence during uh, the movies. And when you look at the tech of this new Manhattan location, wow, it is gorgeous. We're talking about 4K digital projection, laser projectors from Cineonic in all 14 screens, 7.1 surround sound, and reserved seating with very comfortable recliners. I think it's a magnificent addition to New York, really designed to work in tandem with its existing presence in Brooklyn. So it's a great conversation I was able to have in Tim going over all of these details. And also I have to mention it, there was a horrible hot take editorial in the New York Times earlier this summer that I think really got on my nerves. I wanted to make a big stink about it. It would have been futile, it would have been useless. Tim League actually stepped up and did that for the industry, going up uh, with that writer and offering, I think, a very well-informed uh, response to probably one of the more embarrassing hot takes on exhibition that we've seen over the last year and a half. So without further ado, here's our interview with Alamo Drafthouse's Tim League. Tim, thanks for joining us. Let's start with where you are now mm -hmm. at uh, Alamo Drafthouse. Obviously, we know all about the unfortunate bankruptcy that happened mm -hmm during uh, the pandemic, you're now opening a new theater in yeah. New York City. Right. Well, I mean, bankruptcy is such a loaded word, right? Because right. Uh, it was part of a longer term, you know, restructuring process. So we entered bankruptcy by design uh, and uh, knew that there was a clear path out of it. So we, we were the, having a fire sale and putting the projectors out on the curb was never part of the the process and you know the good side is like we're we're refinanced and stable and uh, have rebuilt the team and we're ready to open more so we're we're actually aggressively out there looking for new locations and during the pandemic one of the things that that really made me smile while we were in the thick of it was when you guys released your recipe for the buffalo cauliflower yeah, to make nice. it home <laughs> it's something that i was able to do with my sister she's in austin I'm, I'm here in new york and we were able to share that alamo experience can you talk about that uh strategy you guys had to keep in touch and engage your audiences with the alamo brand when all your theaters were closed yeah i mean it was it was such a strange time we're just there's lots of things that we tried to do um uh when we weren't able to show movies. So we built Alamo On Demand. It's like an on-demand platform. And then we started doing uh, some of our signature shows. So we would do uh, group watch parties for Agfa screenings or Weird Wednesday. And uh, we did Fantastic Fest, you know, virtually, like a taste of Fantastic Fest. And not only did it keep the community together as best as we could, but it also expanded it. Like, strangely, we'd have people tuning in from all over the globe that, you know, had heard about some of these programming series and had never had the opportunity to come to Austin or New York and experience them. So there are some little micro silver linings in a very not so silver time. <laughs> right, right. And I know obviously since the reopening, uh, there's been different decisions to make in reopening, obviously, yeah. uh, restructuring part of the business. Still your locations, some of the franchise locations are now operating under different names. Yeah. What's the footprint right now of the circuit? as it stands? Uh, there's 36 locations and uh, we have about five that are under construction. Mm -hmm. And uh, I forget the exact screen count. It's around, around 270 or so screens. 
So it's a little bit trunk. We had, we closed some that just really weren't making money and probably weren't going to make it out of the, uh, the tough times of 2020. But, um, uh, but yeah, we're going to, we're going to march forward and be bigger than we were probably within a year. Oh, fantastic news. And obviously a big part of that is this milestone opening here in yes. New York City. <laughs> six years, the first location might have been more than six years ago. You were looking at the Upper West Side. Right. You're finally open here in, uh, in downtown, uh, the financial district in Manhattan. Uh, can you tell us about that process? Is this the hardest cinema you've opened since you became an exhibitor? Oh, it's a tie. It's between this one and San Francisco. Okay. San Francisco was a full inside and out historic renovation of a, you know, a 1914 theater. And that has its own challenges. So it was, uh, we had to seismically reinforce the lobby. We had to tear down historic plaster, scan it, and then rebuild it. Uh, it was a, a ridiculous process. This is a close second. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're finally up and running. It's, it's a great location. We're here speaking at, uh, at the downstairs lobby of the Alamo Draft House in Lower Manhattan. One of the things that really stands out to me that I think you guys have done really well is integrate uh, retail mm-hmm. into your locations. Yeah. Um, and it's something that obviously, once the pandemic forced a lot of other cinemas to close, our colleagues have trouble to find ways to engage and even bring in some revenue. Mm-hmm. You guys now have an established brand and you're integrating these retail spaces in your cinemas. Can you talk a little bit about that strategy and the vision behind that? Sure. I, I think when we um, started to expand, you know, we, we started as a mom and pop theater, a single mm-hmm. screen with my wife, literally mom and pop. I was pop, she was mom. Um, and then as we started to expand, this idea of having some other elements to the brand that all spoke to the same audience, you know, for movie lovers, by movie lovers. And so that was the impetus for starting Mondo back in the, you know, 15 years ago. And that was really, it was a on-site retail store. And then we've expanded over the years into a lot of different categories, um, uh, posters, I ran the, the board games and puzzles division for a year, and I'm, I'm really, I'm quite sad about leaving that um, because I love board games, I love puzzles. Uh, so it's going to continue on, uh, and vinyl soundtracks. Uh, so during the pandemic, uh, Mondo was really successful. It's just like a, a people were at home and wanting to do things at home, wanted to listen to more records and play more two-person games. Uh, so... Um, I think it's just, I want I want people to come to an Alamo draft house and have, uh, it's like, oh my gosh, this doesn't feel like a, a regular movie theater, right. like the entering and having a, a, hopefully a really cool, interesting bar, like the press room we have here and then having, uh, a retail component. I'm a movie lover. All these things might speak to me, uh, for things that I might want to take home and experience at home. So, and it's, it's something that. It's not exactly a trend. It's, I think, something very innovative that we're starting to see here in the U.S., how to make that work for the moviegoer. You're also experimenting with ticket bundles, mm-hmm. where the ticket also includes uh, a merchandising aspect of a film. Can you go into that strategy in making this more of an experience to leave sure. the house and coming back with a memento? Yeah, I think the, the best uh, version of that is right here at the Manhattan Theater by, by incorporating the press room, which is a print shop. Uh, with vintage movie ads as the heart of it. Mm-hmm. So there's so many, over the next few months, we're going to really explore that uh, in a big way. So like if you if you are, are to watch Some Came Running, 
uh, with Shirley MacLaine and then be able to print a little poster or a note card from the original 1960s plate that it was made from. It's kind of an amazing experience. And um, we're going to allow the guests to actually run the press themselves and explain how it works and what the history of it is. So it's this idea of, yeah, you can just see a movie, but how can we make this incredible memory for you that's, uh, that's really special and you'll remember forever? And you have seven screens already open in Brooklyn. Yeah. You're adding 14 now to New York City. Yeah. What does that permit you guys to do here in New York? We play everything we want to play. With some of the toughest decisions and conversations are, it's like, I'm sorry, but we, you know, we have to open Spider-Man or we have to open up the Avengers and we can't, uh, we can't play. Uh, it's usually the documentaries, the foreign language films and the smaller indie films that don't get the screen placement um, during times where there's a lot of blockbusters because we play rep and blockbusters and indie. And so with 14 screens and they're all relatively low seat count, it means you can, you, we can open up everything we want and we want to show everything we want to show. We want to support, uh, you know, Sony classics and uh, uh, Kino Lorber and oscilloscope. And we haven't been able to do as good a job as we want to, especially in New York. And New York is a hugely important market to open a film. So I'm, I'm excited to be able to support mov more movies we love. And you guys have been able to crack the code on uh, repertory during off-peak periods, mm -hmm. going into your archives on a Tuesday night, on a Wednesday night. Uh, can you tell me about how that has grown over the last five years when I think of the rest of exhibition is wondering, how can I make off-peak work? Yeah. I think it's... Um, it also speaks to the building an audience. Like mm -hmm. uh, we have some signature shows that run weekly in our big cities: Terror Tuesday, Weird Wednesday, and there's a there's a vibe to it. Like the the people that are interested in watching a pretty strange uh, rep movie from the '60s, '70s, '80s, and having a host talk to you about why this is special, why they love it, watch vintage trailers. It's 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 like a it's like a little micro community, mm -hmm. and it's being and committing to that. It's like yeah, we're gonna. We love this. We know it's awesome. And I know there's in this city of 8 million people, there's other weirdos like me. So let's, let's gather and let's like make Wednesday our day. Um, yeah, you're eventizing Wednesdays. An exhibition yeah. that's been a challenge yeah. for over the last 100 plus years, right? right. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating how you've been able to, to accomplish that. On, on a big picture, I, I have to ask you, um, because earlier this summer, uh, my wife comes up to me and goes, oh my God, don't open the New York Times. You're going to be furious. It's a hot take. Don't pay attention to it. Don't do it. Uh, I looked at it. Of course I yeah, did. Yeah. And yeah, uh, I'm not going to tell you my reaction. You can probably imagine it uh, editing the, the trade magazine for movie theaters. Um, but I'm glad that you spoke up. Uh, can you tell me about the need for us as exhibitors, for this community to speak up and really set the record straight when... There's a lot of speculation mm -hmm. from folks that maybe aren't super informed about where the industry is. Yeah, sure. I mean, to me, like yeah. the idea that there's these, oh, cinemas are dead, cinemas are dying. They've, they've been predicting this since the, you know, the advent of uh, black and white television in the 50s and you know, to the VCR, to the DVD player, to streaming, to Netflix, to everything, you know, but I, I'll give you like a concrete example of this month, right? Tonight is the opening of Dune. You can watch Dune on HBO Max. I cry for those human beings that are going to make that decision and watch it on their iPad, right? <laughs> like, I mean, it's that movie is cinema grand. I mean, it's like 
It's like it's just even talking about it. I've got goosebumps about it because it's immersive. It's it's such a visceral experience, and it's cinema. Yeah. Like it's it's not cinema on your iPad or on your phone or when you're multitasking and checking email on the train. Like yeah, I guess you got this basic plot points and you can talk about it at work. Say you saw it, but did you really see it? Yeah, that movie is yeah. intended for cinema, and it's such a at its best. It's a phenomenal experience, and I actually love that there's a bit of pressure on the industry to say, no, we know at our best um, that this is an unstoppable force and it's, and people want to get out of the house and experience it. So let's be at our top game. Everybody, everybody should be at our top game and we're going to be just fine. <laughs> I, I, I think we are too. Thank you so much for your time, Tim. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And thanks again to Tim League for joining us on this week's episode of the Box Office Podcast, which is produced by Box Office Pro the box office company and record edit podcast. Rebecca, thanks again for joining us and we will see you again next week on Thursday for a new episode.